Welcome to Connected with Emily Obey. I'm your host. This is a podcast dedicated to having conversations that matter to help us feel connected to ourselves, to each other, and to the world we live in. You'll most likely never find me on a volleyball court because I was once kicked out of a grade nine gym class for being so bad at it, the teacher thought I was fully messing with him. You will, however, find me writing books, coaching people on how to have a successful online business through effective content marketing and copywriting, and helping people heal from adversity to live lives that truly feel good and make an impact in our society. Stick around, because I ask the questions we're all wanting to know the answers to. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Connected with Emily Obey. Today on the show, I have associate psychotherapist, relationship coach, Sylvie Kukasian. And oh, guys, I'm so excited for this one. She's going to be talking to us about attachment styles in our relationships, as well as boundaries. Sylvie, thank you for being here with us. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. And for I just feel like this episode is going to be magic. So welcome. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled. I've been looking forward for this episode for the last couple of weeks. So I'm really thrilled. Oh, so good. So we actually met on Instagram. <laughs> and I always say the good old fashioned way. <laughs> and your Instagram is, is so um, educational. Mm-hmm. I think that you go on your page and we immediately, it's like we're getting these little snippets of the best therapy session we've ever had. Um, So you share so much value and so much education with your platform and your audience. Um, And that to me is like the best way to use social media. So one, thank you. And I just feel like I want to hear more about why you've decided to approach social media in this way. But before we get into more of the meat of the episode, the first question that I always ask people um, is because the podcast is called Connected, when is the last time that you were super connected either to yourself, to someone else, to a pet, to the world that we live in, in a way that truly, truly moved you, like left a mark on you? Hmm. Last time I felt truly, truly connected. Uh, Of course, there's little bits here and there, but I would say the most impactful, meaningful uh, moment that comes to mind is I recently finished uh, a women's group about a month and a half ago, and it was a 15-week course where we dove into the developmental stages that women go through from birth till, till we die, pretty much, and it was so beautiful for me to be with uh, other women that were in all different ages, all different backgrounds, and just sharing our daily experiences and holding space for each other. But really, how important it is, you know, it was, it was so important for me to just be able to share my own stuff as a therapist. Obviously, it's, it's you know, I'm doing that for so many other people all the time. And it's like, oh, I get to share too. So <laughs> it felt very grounding and very connecting for me to be in that experience with other women. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. Um, so tell us about why you decided to show up on Instagram the way that you do and on social media. What inspires you to give us so much good content and education? Thank you so much for the beautiful acknowledgement for, for everything that you just said, Emily. I really appreciate it. Yeah. You know, I, when I graduated from grad school in, was it, gosh, it's been like eight years now, um, I did all kinds of work. I worked in a preschool setting. I worked in, um, in adult, with adults. And then I worked in a group home for about a year. And I haven't, I haven't really shared this experience um, at all yet. So I worked in a group home with teenage girls. And I was so drawn to it. It was 
pretty much women that had been abused. I mean, pr- probably some of the hardest things you've experienced. And I was in, in that space for eight hours a day. And I was, I realized that as much as I, you know, I wanted to be present for these women, the system, the way that it was um, put together was not really conducive to, um, to my sensitive nature. You know, I was like, I, I, I realized that I had to figure out how to do this in a way that not only am I able, able to help people, but where I'm not going to burn out, you know, it has to be yes. win-win for both sides here. Yeah. And it, it was so hard to acknowledge that, but I was like, okay, and I had to go to my cocoon and my, my, you know, quiet mode for, I think I, I stopped doing therapy for two years. I was like, what, how can I spread the message of therapy to people, but in a way that, um, really works for me, but it's also the kind of therapy that I love. And I've always wanted to take the stigma off of couples therapy and doing our own work. So I was like, I I saw Instagram, it started to become more of a popular thing. And then I just got an intuitive hit and it was so clear. It's like this, something about this platform, Sylvie, is going to be a really powerful way for you to be able to reach people and for you to be able to um, share therapeutic educational tools but in a fun way in an uh, in a, an exciting way in an educational way and also just normalize it through some of my own experiences and you know that that's the great thing about social media we can normal normalize ourselves and not make us ourselves appear to be any kind of guru um which just disarms people and makes them want to want to be able to do that kind of work right alongside with you so all of those things led me to that path of launching on instagram Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Instagram is such a beautiful platform for everything that you just explained. And I think that that is something that um, any therapist or practitioner of any kind who works with other humans, that's a question that we entertain a lot of how does one do the work, but not burn out themselves? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you don't know that you're burned out until you're burned out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you have nothing left to give. So then it becomes a very dysregulated cycle. Yeah. So I'm assuming then from that point, um, you have been working solely in private practice, correct? Yes. Private practice, couples, uh, singles, but also a lot of coaching where I get to um, teach the, some of the boundaries and attachment styles more educationally with, with people all over the world. Oh, I love that. Um, I actually have a few therapists that I actually am thinking of who are in my audience who I have worked with in an SE way or in a copywriting uh, way because I have done different things over the years in my own business. And um, something that there, a question that comes up a lot for people um, that I feel like I should actually take advantage of this moment and ask you, sure. um, how do you feel like you manage the, the, the intercross between coaching and therapy? Like what are the differences for you? And even for people listening who are not identifying as therapists or coaches themselves, um, give us a little bit of insight around that. How do you see, how do you see both the worlds colliding and merging well for you? And where do you see the differences? Such a, such a powerful question. And I think we're still, you know, learning the differences as it's evolving because coaching, of course, is not a regulated, um, yeah. not regulated yet. So there's still a lot of, of nuance and evolve, evolvement that's happening. But I would say for me personally, you know, when I'm doing therapy, I'm really working in a much deeper, um, I'm working with the DSM, I'm working with yeah. deeper anxieties and I'm working with depression and I'm working with 
tools that, uh, you know, I'm really working on the regulation piece. With coaching for me, it's much more educational. So it's people that usually already have a therapist or they have a counselor or they have a grief person or they're in a 12-step person. So they have somebody that's doing the more emotionally regulating work, but maybe they want to learn some new ways, like, like how to language boundaries. They may be struggling with um, how to put certain things to words, or they want to understand the attachment styles better, but they're not really experiencing anything really intense happening in their life. So if I come, if someone comes to me that has something pretty intense, I always refer them to more of a therapist, somebody that's in person, because yeah. And sometimes I might be working with someone as a coach and something comes up while we're working with someone. So it's important in the first session for me, I, I always do a consultation with someone. I let them know if things start to feel really intense, if you know you may need deeper support, I'm going to help you find that. And we work on making sure that um, they get their emotional needs tended to because it is very different and it's, it's, a, it's not as deep. And it's important for us, of course, as, you know, as healers to be very mindful of those kind of boundaries and um, so that we can feel more free in our work. You know, that was part of my biggest fear. Like how am I, you know, I'm, you know, we're all terrified because we don't want to hurt anybody. We don't want to, you know, put anyone in a situation that can damage them. So as we educate ourselves and get more and more clear is of course, that's with being more confident in doing the work. Um, you just start to get more clear on what those boundaries are. And we're always learning, right? Evolving as we do the work ourselves. Totally. I love that. I was actually having a conversation with someone the other day um, and we were um, discussing like what she thought her experience with the coach would be. She's just like, I thought it was going to be like, they were telling me more about their lives and it was like a friendship conversation. I was like, no, it's still mm -hmm. client oriented, you know? Yeah. Um, so I find that there's a lot of, um, there's a, maybe they, it kind of feels like obscure. It's like, what does it all mean? Like, what are the differences and what's right for me? So I actually love the way that you just explained it. It, it felt very concise and very clear. Thank you for that. I appreciate oh, absolutely. it. Absolutely. I mean, me and my partner have worked with a coach that was very unethical and we went through a really terrible experience and yeah. both as healers ourselves. And we really got the, you know, if a coach has not done their own work, if a therapist has not done their own work, no matter how many degrees they have, you know, we have to be very careful, you know, just because somebody has a title, we have to still trust our own instincts if we feel like something is not being honored or they're not good with boundaries yeah. and, you know, see what happens if we bring that to them. I'm very protective. You know, that's part of the educating on my platform is, you know, a lot of these people, they're not coming to me, but at least they can walk away with, okay, how can I, if I go to a new therapist, how can I know if this is going to be a good fit or how can I make sure that I am, I'm making the most out of this experience and protecting myself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, um, it's, I think relationships with coaches or therapists can be tricky because there's um, this level of authority there. And if we have some wounding around authority, like it becomes very complicated in the way that we attach and the way that we make the choices to work with someone or not work with someone. And um, I think that that's a whole other can of worms that we could probably spend hours yes. looking at because this is something that I always say like with before you're going to hire someone I do this for myself too it's like where did you get educated one yes like what are your titles what are your certifications like what are your skills here right do they match what my needs are but beyond that it's also like what are you currently doing to take care of yourself how can mm -hmm. you show up as a helper of humans because 
no one can do that without the support is my belief anyway. Um, like without ongoing support, whether that's personal or professional or a mixture of both in one's life. Right. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, just so for me to clarify, Emily, you yeah. mean when you're looking for somebody to to support you and your experience, you're you're sharing your process of how you choose. Yeah, to yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's typically what I do. I I feel like I kind of vet. Um, sure, what's the education, but also what is your ongoing kind of support? How do you make sure that? Oh, I got it. Now I got it. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's exactly what. Totally agree with you. What when what I was saying earlier, yeah. it's great if a therapist has a or a coach has you know has done some kind of training or educational, but they're still human. We're all still human. I mean, I, I have trauma. I have PTSD as a therapist. Is something that I'm very transparent about. Mm-hmm. I do consistent therapy. I do consistent groups, mm-hmm. and it's something that I will probably struggle with for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. But had I not done that shadow work it would absolutely get in the way for me. And so if you notice, you know, you're working with a therapist that does projecting on you, or if you bring things up to them that you might feel uncomfortable and, and they, don't re- they don't repair well with you or they get defensive, those are really big red flags. So sometimes you don't know until you're already working with someone, but those are okay. signs to get the hell out. Yeah. Okay. So this is so interesting because I feel like we, there's not a lot of social conversations around this. So I like how we're touching on this and how this must be part of um, the boundary work that you do with your clients. So tell us a little bit more about what your core foundations are in your practice and, and start educating us as much as you'd like here as well. When you're talking about boundaries and attachment styles, what do you feel is really important for every human to um, either know or master about these topics? Mm. Big question, Big Emily. Question. <laughs> Tell okay. us all the things, no pressure. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, so let me see where to, where to start. Okay, so um, the two main areas that I, I really specialize and focus on in my work is exactly what you said, the attachment styles and yeah. boundaries. Yeah. So the reason why both of these things have become a primary part of my work and they're both so equally important. So the attachment styles are basically the way that um, we bond to our primary caregiver or the main parent that was the emotional regulator for us as children, how they tuned in, how responsive they were, how easily they were able to make repairs with us determines the kind of attachment we bonded, which later affects the way that we bond and attach to our intimate partners and close friends as adults. So I will break those down. I'll just dive right into it to give people you know, a little, a little dose. Of what yes. <laughs> So we have people that are securely attached. These are people that have had a caregiver, again, like very tuned in, mostly responsive, mostly emotionally available, can sense when they didn't do a good job of uh, regulating their their child and they they repaired very quickly. And people that have had that kind of... um, attachment as a child, they grow up feeling very trusting and trusting of being able to share their own hurts, but also seeing people's best intentions, regardless if they, they were feel hurt by them. They're more flexible, more cooperative, more fair in their relationships. They're pretty damn great partners, to be honest. <laughs> mm-hmm. People that are anxiously attached, they, um, they were raised by a caregiver that was more inconsistent. So sometimes their parent was available, sometimes they weren't. It was like this push-pull, never really knowing what you're going to get. And so when these people become adults, they often feel like they're more of the givers than the receivers. They tend to get more angry and they cling when they feel their partner is pulling away even a tiny little inkling. They're terrified of being abandoned. And 
if you're if you have an anxious um, attachment style, you probably have much more of a you have a sensitive nervous system. So any threats to the relationship, you you go on panic mode, and yeah. your brain makes up all kinds of assumptions and stories to pretty much validate the very fear that you have. Yeah, people that are avoidant and avoidance are split into two different types. There is dismissive and fearful. Um, people that are avoidant were left alone as children. So they were like the little adult. They were never really seen fully. They were seen maybe for parts. There tends to be a lot of shame in families that had that avoidant uh, upbringing. Um, a lot of image and like, you know, wanting to protect the parents, the parents, the way the parents look. And so they self they learn to self-regulate themselves since there is no available parent that is going to be present for what they're experiencing. When they're adults, they downplay the importance of relationship because they had to, that's how they, they had to survive. They needed to just take care of themselves. So when they're with somebody that wants to connect and wants to get to know them and, you know, wants to be close to them, they feel extremely threatened. They want to push them away. They need a lot of alone time. And if we think about it, um, you know, even the most natural thing that we want, because of course, even somebody that's avoided wants that connection, but they're so terrified of it because it really feels so uncomfortable. And it also brings up all of those negative memories that they experienced when they were a child. So, yeah. so yeah. much of this stuff comes up when we're in an intimate relationship and so many couples break up because they don't know what's actually happening. Yeah. And I think that um, also there's maybe even a little bit of stigma around like, oh, avoidant people, they just don't care about, um, they don't care about connection. And that's just so not true. It's, um, they're attached that way because they almost had to repress their need for connection, like you were saying. Um exactly. And then when it comes up, I think you said that so beautifully, that really landed for me anyway. Um, it feels like every, when there is that intimacy or that connection available, let's say, um, it feels so scary because then you have to kind of see how that was never there. Right. Yes, exactly. You nailed it. Like it brings up all those memories of the fact that you didn't have it or you had to be alone. And it gives you that contrast. And the only way to override that and to move into a healthy, you know, secure relationship is to feel those things, even though it's, it, it can be so terrifying and scary to have to replay those memories out in your brain. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. And I think that's so helpful for, for people to just understand the mechanism behind why we attach in certain ways, right? Yes. Um, you did say there's um, the avoidant attachment style is kind of split into two, fearful yes. and dismissive. Can you give us um, just a little bit more insight on what's it like to be avoidant fearful and then what's, what's it like to be avoidant dismissive? Yes, exactly. So the first one that I was talking about for the avoidant was the dismissive type. That was a child that does a lot of the self-regulating, downplays the relationship. So think about somebody that's really successful in their work. Yes. They are such a go-getter. They might be like the CEO of a company, but they're terrible at relationships. Like they just cannot have a healthy relationship for the life of them. Mm -hmm. So they're super self-sufficient, but again, they're dismissive of that closeness in, in an intimate way. With fearful types, they're more dependent on others, but they also avoid the intimacy due to a fear of rejection. So they tend to have a little bit more of a lower self-esteem and a higher uh, attachment anxiety where dismissive types don't really show that low self-esteem. They're more like self-assured and tend to be more um, just content with the way things are, at least appearance wise. 
Yeah, totally. Okay, cool. Um, I'm seeing like all my past relationships one by one. I'm like, this there's here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, totally. So I know that there's um, such thing called, um, uh, well, I don't know, actually, do you resonate with this? The anxious avoidant. So it's kind of like, they would you say that that's just avoidant fearful and more so psychology speak like what that's would what you... i would correlate it with yeah the avoidant yeah. fearful like they're still kind of pushing away but and they you know they're still regulate a lot themselves but they're more open to that closeness even though they're terrified and they have that anxiety that comes with it right and that's that's the fear of rejection of like if i really let down my walls here and i connect and i am in true intimacy with this person could they reject me? Thus, I'm going to keep them at a distance so that doesn't happen whenever things become too close, correct? Exactly. It's a way of protecting ourselves from, from feeling any kind of, of pain that obviously intimacy you know, comes with because they can't regulate it. You know, It's one thing when people that are secure, because they've been regulated so well by a parent, that they develop an internal mechanism to regulate their own emotions. With people that are anxious and avoidant, both kinds of avoidant, they don't have a healthy way to regulate themselves. Even a, the dismissive type that regulates themselves, it's not ideal. We want to co-regulate. We want to, you know, while I'm, if I was with you in person, we would be regulating each other back and forth. That's the ideal that we want to, that we want to cultivate rather than I'm like a solo player on one side of the street and you're over there, but we're not actually connecting on any kind of real level. Right. And I love that you just said the goal is the co-regulation, <laughs> right? Yes. Because I think um, there is a lot of shame around, um, well, actually this is an interesting thing. I want to get into boundaries as well, but it feels mm -hmm. like I've, this is a personal opinion, I guess. I've noticed that there can be a lot of shame for um, depending on other people, right? Um, yes. That's immediately you're like you're codependent. I know that I've been in a lot of therapy settings. Um, I've been in therapy since I'm like 12. Mm -hmm. um, so like I've, I've gone through a lot of therapists and I have often felt like I was being shamed because I was um, needy and dependent on at the time when I was a child, that was probably normal. Mm -hmm. um, but I have felt a lot of shame around like codependency uh, of sorts, which I definitely have had a history of being codependent. Mm -hmm. um, however, then I kind of did a pendulum swing of like, never mind, then I'll just, it can't be dependent on anyone, yeah. right? So it's been a whole journey, especially um, since I went to school to do a lot of nervous system education. It's been a whole journey to like reintegrating me um, in terms of like feeling like I could depend on people and that co-regulation is actually the goal. And the goal is not like total self-isolation, self-regulation so that you avoid being codependent. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you find that that's, just tell me actually what that brought up for you, my sharing. <laughs> well, can I add, do you mind if I ask you a question about what you yeah, just shared? I would love. Um, when you shared, you, you noticed yourself codependent. Can you share with me a little bit of what that looked like for you just so I can have an idea of my yeah, brain? Yeah, um, I think I was very codependent in past relationships, especially like with my most recent long-term relationship. I think we were very much of like, I do this for you and you do this for me. And mm -hmm. we can't do that for our own selves. Like we need each other for, for the things that we can't basically provide for our own selves. So as far that as functionality, way. Emily? No, like it was more so physical because I have a very, like I have a huge history of chronic illness. So a lot of uh, my dependency on him was physical. 
Um, and yeah, like I just felt like I couldn't always survive without him. And because of the, because of the very extensive, uh, chronic illness issues that I have dealt with in my life, but also then him financially where I'm very solid financially on his end, that's where he really depended on me. And I don't know, we didn't like really grow up Mm. properly. Um, and we would like basically like try to mother and father ourselves, um, or each other actually rather than ourselves. And it didn't end up, it didn't end up really well. And I think that that, yeah, so that's almost like scarred me of like, I don't ever want to do that again. And I see myself wanting to swing to the other side of things of like really independent, super self-regulation, not really asking for any help when I, I do need it. And I think that's also problematic, if that makes sense. Absolutely makes a lot of sense. I think yeah. it's, I'm sure so many people listening can probably relate and myself included in a different kind of codependency. Yeah. Uh, I think what you're, what I'm hearing you say is you realize where things might've been too enmeshed and you wouldn't want it to be like that, but you also don't want to be on the extreme side of being so independent that you can't rely on each other in a healthy way, a necessary way. What does that even look like? You know, where is the middle where you can depend, but still have your autonomy, right? Isn't that what we are all wanting? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that's what you equate to co-regulation. That's and that's exactly it. What we want to be able to rely on our partner. I mean, that is that our partner is when we bond with someone, we literally attach to our intimate partner on a nervous system level. Mm. So there is no choice about it. Whether or not you <laughs> dismissive or anxious, good luck trying to pretend you are a different attachment style than you are, because sooner or later, whether that's eight years of pretending, it's going to come out. And for a lot of dis, uh, avoidant people their actual genuine needs don't even come out until they kind of have a life crisis where they kind of hit such a rock bottom that they finally, the neediness comes out where they're like, whoa, who the hell is this person? Mm. Or, you know, when somebody that's with somebody that's anxious, they, they might be dating in the earlier phase. And this is what I always coach my clients with is stop trying to pretend you don't have those needs in the early on dating, show it as much as you can, but in a, in a, in a lighthearted, casual way where you're, you're letting somebody know that you, you tend to be a little bit more sensitive than most people. You, you know this about yourself. You know that reassurance for you is really important, but also that you're willing to do the same thing back for your partner. So it's not just all about you and your needs. And it becomes, cause what happens with people that are anxious, just to become too self-focused and people that are avoidant become too self-focused, but in very different ways. Mm. One is like, give me more connection. The other one is leave me the heck alone. You know? <laughs> <laughs> give me my space. I want yeah. you. And Stan Tech and says, he's like, I want you in my house, but not in my room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So actually, can you tell us a little bit about like the couplings of different types together, like what that looks like, or if that feel if that feels right for you right now? Absolutely. So the secure attachment style, and I want to, I want to make a quick note. So there's also, we also develop and our attachment styles evolve based on who we're with. So even if we had an incredible childhood upbringing, if somehow we were with a really toxic partner in our, in our first main primary relationship or the next one, it can absolutely make us become more avoided or more anxious. Um, you know, sometimes life circumstances just put us 
in front of somebody that would be not somebody we would ever ideally choose to be with. And it's all on a spectrum, you know. Some of us can be 60% secure, but we also have some anxious tendencies or we have some avoidant tendencies. So the key is not to put yourself in a box, oh, I'm an avoidant or I'm an anxious, because I have a little bit of all three. Mm -hmm. And we all have, you know, a varying amount of these things. It's, It's to look at what are the behaviors that I tend to do that tends to push away uh, a, a partner that I'm with, whether that's, you know, regulating too much of myself or clinging to my partner in a way that nobody would feel like they can tolerate. It's just so intense and so, um, you know, too much pressure on anybody that they just, they can't, they'll suffocate, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's recognizing what those things are and learning how to work with them. So you can pair up with any kind of attachment style, Obviously, there's ones that are going to be more challenging, like anxious and anxious are pretty challenging because they both tend to reject their partner when they feel rejected. So if I feel rejected as somebody anxious, I'm going to probably, because I'm not good at communicating my upsets directly as somebody anxious, I will play games or I will, you know, do something to make my partner jealous or, and then the other partner feels that and they end up doing the same thing. So unless they're extremely aware and have done the work, they were just continue to scare the living bejesus out of each other, the relationship. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. And then anxious and avoidant, of course, is a very common pairing because they both um, highlight each other's own fears. If I'm somebody that's anxious, I'm going to pick somebody that's avoidant because I already have the internal map imprinted in my brain that I'm not going to be emotionally responded to, that I'm not going to be, uh, you know, they're not going to tune into me. So it just replays that same cycle unless I bring some logic into it. And unless my partner brings some logic and perspective into the dynamic and we start to create some healthy agreements so we call ourselves and each other out when we start to do those things so we can create a secure functioning relationship. I don't have to be secure, but I can create um, boundaries to have a secure relationship. Does that make sense? Oh my gosh. Yeah. That makes total, total sense. I do have a question for you. Um, do you feel like our attachment style also gets triggered by different people? Like, can so actually I'm going to reword my question in a way that makes more sense. Okay. I, I can sometimes, when I'm dating a avoidant attached person, I can see that my, like my attachment style to them becomes a bit more classic anxious. Then I feel like sometimes if I am with someone who is more so anxious, I feel like I become um, avoidant, fearful, for example. Like, so then sometimes I'm like, how do I, I don't know what I am because it feels like everybody triggers me in a different way. (laughs) Cause um, it feels, I feel the most resonant with the attachment style of um, avoidant, fearful myself. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've also been in relationships with people where, it felt more like I was anxious avoidant. Um, And that's what I was actually talking to you about, like, would that equal avoidant fearful? So um, because it was, it it felt very much like, um, it's like, I want the closeness, but then if someone like wants it more than me, then that makes me suffocate. So and I, and a lot of the questions on Instagram for you were around this. It's like, uh-huh. why do people trigger me in different ways? Like, tell us more about if that's a thing or if it's just we're misinterpreting something. Well, you, you said it perfectly. So you said that you tend to get more triggered when somebody is more clingy to you. 
from yes. what I, yes, right? Yeah, I'm like, oh gosh, I feel really, really trapped. But then if someone's not giving me the, I don't know, the closeness that I'm seeking to the level that I'm capable of handling it without feeling triggered, I'm, I feel like I'm longing for it. I, I want it. I'm obsessed with it. I, I, you know what I mean? If, if that resonates. Absolutely. So even somebody that's secure, mm-hmm. if they're with partnered up with somebody that's anxious and that's, or that's clinging, they're going to call that person out in a loving way. They'll be able to tune mm-hmm. into what they need, but also, Hey, I need you to express things more directly. Got and it. so they still can intuitively sense when, when somebody is acting out in a way that's not really healthy to the relationship. So if you feel like your partner is pulling away, of course you're going to feel anxious. Or if you feel like your partner is coming to you from a, from a really intense, needy feeling, of course that's going to trigger you. I think that's just being human, but it's noticing which ones we tend to have a really strong reaction to. Like for example, I'm also avoidant fearful. Mm -hmm. And I, even though I can be anxious if somebody's not being emotionally present, I could still tolerate feeling anxious better than I can if somebody's approaching me too intensely. With that, Mm -hmm. I feel like I want to run the hell out Mm -hmm. the door. Right. I feel like we do tend to identify with one more particularly, mm-hmm. but it definitely evolves based on who we're with and the importance of that. And the reason why it's so important to be mindful of what's happening inside of us is so that we can start creating healthy boundaries and agreements around that. Because if I'm anxious and I'm feeling anxious, I'm creating this pattern inside of me that is, you know, not a healthy dynamic here. You know, what I really need to do is express what I'm experiencing. Hey, you know, I noticed that when we get really close, you're pulling away. Talk to me, what's going on? And if I'm with somebody that's avoided and that dismisses that and doesn't really care and doesn't want to make me feel comfort or want to work on those things with me, then it's going to just make my anxiousness intensify. And that's not going to be a healthy healthy relationship long-term if it doesn't get, if that pattern doesn't get interrupted. Yeah. Okay. Totally. So tell us how, tell us how the boundaries fit within the different attachment styles. So let's say um, I'm partnered up. It's like two avoidance because we haven't talked about that yet. How would, how would boundaries start getting created in, in that context or honestly, whatever context you want to talk about, but I'd be interested in hearing that one personally. <laughs> For the avoid and avoid it? Oh. Yeah. Like how do you start creating boundaries? How does boundaries come into into play once you've realized, okay, these are our tendencies um, as a couple or in a relationship. It's funny with people that are, might be too dismissive, avoidant people, they'll just kind of be in their own lane, but they never intersect. Like they'll never really have the intimate connection that they really need and crave. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really, you know, creating the boundary and the green, the container around the relationship that, Hey, you know what? I'm noticing that we're both really too, pretty damn well self-sufficient people. We're really good at this. We know we have, we're exceptionally strong in these suits, but I find that, you know, we're not really connecting in a deep way. So what can we do to, to, to merge a little bit more, um, even if it feels a little bit scary. And that might involve going to a couple's therapist because they don't have, if they don't have the skills to do it, there's not going to just be able to be pulled out of thin air. Like if, they, if you know, it goes out the same way that it came in. So yeah. they might have to do a workshop together or do a therapy class or do an online course that, you know, has actual rituals and tools that they can practice and put it on the calendar and make it a priority, even though they're probably going to feel both feel anxious and anxiety to do it. Mm-hmm. But the, this is where the agreement and the container has to uh, come before the feeling of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So 
I love that. So is that what you teach in terms, like, let's say they go to you as a couples therapist. Yeah. Um, what do you do so that there's boundaries within the relationship? How do you help people cultivate that? How does it all, how does it all flow? Well, there's always one partner, no matter what, that feels disconnection first. Even if you have two people that are avoided and two people that are anxious, there's always going to be one that is going to be more sensitive to disconnection. It just, even if, you know, and it can be different, no matter, like it can be that way in one relationship. And if they partner up with somebody else, it might be a completely different, the relationship itself has a different energy, you know? So if you, Emily could be with this guy and it could be this way, or it could be with this person and it could be this way and it could be this totally different way with this person. I really do find that to be true as actually. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like a third entity forms with the two attachment styles, you know? Yeah. It's because like basically like a relationship becomes like, I don't know if you consider it like a person itself, but it does become its own thing. You know, it, that's exactly, yeah. that's exactly what I feel like it becomes like a third yeah. being. <laughs> yeah, totally. And then it's like, it gets created based off the two people who are in it and no two people are the same. So it makes sense that it would be different slightly all the time, no matter if you're the same person. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And so whoever is coming, usually the person that comes to me is the one that feels a disconnection first and, you know, is wanting to create um, some way to stay connected, but also in a way that honors their style. So mm-hmm. what I mean by that, let's say just because somebody feels that there's a disconnection, they can't just approach somebody avoidant in any way they like and expect to get what they want. It's just right. never going to work. They're yeah. going to push them away. They're going to do things. And so I do a lot of educating around tools to help them know what each person needs because usually they're giving each other the thing that they want and it's never what the other person wants. It's mm. rarely, I should say not never, but it's rarely what the other person wants. Mm. Um, for example, let's say I'm working with one partner of them, couple that's more dismiss, uh, avoidant and people that are avoidant, again, they're so used to self-regulating that if you take them from being alone to a crowded space or in with a con- even with their partner to connect, it's really uncomfortable for them. They need transition time sometimes. Got so it. if they've been in their head all day in work mode, they come home and their partner is like, I just want to connect. Give me, give me love. I'm like, no. <laughs> What your partner needs is, yes, give them a kiss, tell them you love them, but let them have a little bit of transition time so they can regulate themselves a little bit and so then they can come back to you. You can't just approach them with, or at least if, if you don't get it back in the same way you need it, learning to not take that personally, learning to not um, internalize that or take that as a rejection, because that's what we tend to do. We assume that just because our partner is not doing what we want, that, you know, sometimes it's just because they can't tolerate that much connection time and they need, they need to be approached in different ways. Also for people that are avoidant, um, another tool that's really helpful if you have two avoidant partners, Mm -hmm. um, doing activities together where you're not the focus of, um, you're not just talking eye to eye, you know, emotionally sharing back and forth, all these intense things, do an activity where there's a third thing. It can be a music event. It can be a show. It can be something where you're both enjoying a third thing. And then you get to share the joy of that experience together. And and you can actually have your guard down better that way. Mm. Amazing. Yeah, it's interesting, and, right? Because you you would never think that you have to do things differently because you're like, well, we should just be able to connect. No, right? Overwhelm your partner, you know? Right, totally. And I I do feel like not understanding attachment styles leads 
and how to navigate it actually even like, cause I feel it's one thing to like understand what it is and, and, and things, but to not really know the steps on how to navigate it or not to have support in that way. Um, I feel like it probably does lead to a lot of unnecessary breakups. If not all breakups. <laughs> yes. oh, so true. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you're not dealing with, you're not dealing with a person's personality. You're dealing with their nervous system. And if you can't regulate each other's nervous system, you're done. You just, you can't because it's like, even if you have a conflict with your partner, if you're not repairing after the conflict well, in a way that works for both of you, then you start to associate your partner with all these negative feelings that obviously affects our perception of them over time, over time, over time. We flood and we just automatically start uh, without even them saying more than three words. We just go to that negative feeling. So learning to regulate your partner and that's what, I'm, that's what I mean by healthy dependency. We need yeah. that. We can't not have that in a, in a relationship. We wouldn't survive. We would just kind of be, you know, two people having separate lives, but just living side by side. Mm. Oh my gosh. Yes. So, and for those who might be listening, who might not be um, familiar with like the term repairing, um, do you want to just give a little bit of insight of, of what repair is when there's conflict? Great question. Absolutely. So what happens when we fight with our partner? You know, I say something that I didn't mean, or my partner says something they didn't mean, or we don't understand each other, or I share an upset and my partner you know, doesn't validate my feelings or doesn't validate my perspective. Now we're just in a pissy, pissy state. A lot of couples leave it at that. You know, they don't actually go back and repair that conversation. And yeah. a really important thing that I like to talk about is it actually does not matter. And this is based on Dr. Gottman's research of working with couples for over 40 years. Um, it doesn't matter how many times you fight. So I really want you to hear this, you guys. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter the frequency, the amount of times you fight. But what matters is how well you go back to your partner after a fight and take responsibility for the things that you did that were hurtful and repair in a way that both partners can feel seen and heard and um, to, feel, to create that connection again. And what, what that looks like is, you know, me being able to go back and say, you know what, I approached you in a really harsh way. I'm so sorry. I, I realized that, you know, I was so desperate to feeling heard and seen by you that I totally violated your boundary that I didn't, I, I criticized you. I was so defensive and I want you to know that I see that I did that and I'm going to be more mindful of that. Mm -hmm. and, and I love the way that you're explaining everything, Sylvie, because it doesn't feel, it feels like you're explaining it in a way that removes the shame or like the personal failure if this has been a problem spot for us. Does that make sense? I, I, that is my biggest hope in doing this because I can't tell you how many repairs I have every week with my own partner. Yes. <laughs> I screw this up constantly. You would think, I mean, I've been honesty. so long, but it's so hard. I mean, I can criticize or I can, you know, in my neediness and just, it, I do it all the time, you guys. And what has freed me more than anything was learning the educational side of these things of really knowing that it's okay. I don't have to do it perfectly, but what I do have to do is own that and not, and not allow my mistake to take away from my self-esteem as a whole. Yeah. 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 And I, I really do love how, um, you explained also, you said, if not all breakups, right. Yeah. Um, that really spoke to me because it, it feels like 
what if all breakups weren't personal failures? Because mm-hmm. I think that we do associate our, our relationships that have quote unquote failed as something's deeply wrong with us. And maybe it's just that we don't have this education. So um, if no one's taught us, like, how are we supposed to get it? You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, of course, sometimes it's just very different values, you know, that we like, I just have a different, I want a family, but this person doesn't, or I, and so, you know, obviously sometimes that, but a lot of times if, if those things are present, yeah. you know, if we're not, if we don't know how our partner works on a fundamental level and being, becoming, an, if we're not an expert on them, and, and, you know, if we're not making that a priority to know their sensitivities and their vulnerabilities, we're setting, we're setting us both to lose. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Oh, thank you for that. That's a gem. So wh- why do you think boundaries are so important? I know that that's a passion piece of, of your work for you. So can you give us your take on the importance of boundaries and why they, why they mean so much to you professionally, but maybe even personally? <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, boundaries is huge because we ha- we, what happens is we can be vulnerable and transparent and share all these sensitive things about each other. But if we're not doing these things in boundaried ways, we end up hurting ourselves and we end up, or we end up hurting our partner. Um, so there's four kind of boundaries that I, that I like to talk about. And, um, this lovely, this lovely woman that Roquel Lerner um, talks about these and I incorporate them a lot in my work. And there's, so there's intellectual boundaries, there's physical boundaries, emotional boundaries, and spiritual boundaries. Mm-hmm. And all of these boundaries, so when they get violated, we start to not recognize when those boundaries become violated as adults. Mm. And we don't even realize it's happening and we're creating damage and we're stepping on our partner's toes, even though we don't think we're doing anything wrong. But in reality, we are violating a boundary that we ourselves have lost touch with. We've become codependent. That's, mm-hmm. you know, you know, the word she uses is we start to, when we have boundaries, we start to have that self-autonomy. We have like more of that, you know, that self-awareness where we know what's mine versus what's yours. I'm not kind of projecting all these things on you and it, gets to where it starts to get enmeshed. So before I, before I go into deep, deep, more deeply about that, let me explain what each of the four, how they can get violated. So it's a little bit more easy to understand. Um, So our intellectual boundaries can get violated as kids. Let's say you grew up in a house where you had a, you know, an alcoholic father, or, you know, you you saw your parents fighting really, really intensely, but then they would act like nothing would happen. Mm. Or you would share an experience with your parents and they would kind of act like your experience didn't really happen. Or they had a very different experience and they wouldn't really validate and nurture your thinking still, your thinking and your, um, your creativity. And so what happens is you start to feel really disoriented around your own intellect. So you'll probably attract people that tend to project on you, that tend to make a lot of assumptions about you. And because this boundary is blurry, you can't hold a boundary yet until you identify that this is happening. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. And that's so well explained. Good. I'm so glad. Okay, good. Yeah. And so that's the intellectual piece. The emotional one is, let's say you had a parent that shared secrets with you as a kid that were so inappropriate, or maybe, you know, gave you sex education, but in a way that was, you were way too young and they did not give you enough context where you can actually take in this intense information 
or you had a parent that made you like their spouse. You know, you let's a lot of times when kids get divorced, they're one of the parents overly rely on their kid for that emotional nourishment after a divorce. And that can be so overwhelming for a child. And the child starts to take on the emotions of the of their parent. And as adults, again, they have a hard time seeing what's between what's mine, what's yours, or they'll partner up with people that are very shut down emotionally and they'll carry all of the internal emotions of that other person or they become the opposite you know they they'll be with someone that's overly emotional but that does not make space for for their emotional experience yeah you can go on and on about these emily yeah no and i'm just like yeah that was me i was married oh. to both of my parents yeah <laughs> um totally totally and that's that's where i actually feel like i struggled the most in terms of my own boundaries as an adult so that makes total sense yeah thank you for explaining that wow oh i'm so glad no i'm glad it's coming through clear because you know these these little distinctions can really help us own where we need to really start owning our boundaries more clearly now so that we can start healing them and to start having a more balanced kind of relating with people and we don't start taking things on that aren't ours you know what i mean yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so the other one that's more obvious is the physical boundary. You know, as kids, if our parents are not really mindful of our physical, you know, sensitivities or they're making us, you know, even hugging people that where we don't know in, in ways that are just not appropriate, we start to shut off from our bodies. We start to turn ourselves off. And then as adults, we, of course, attract people that, you know, can be abusive or, you know, not really sensitive with our um, it's scary how how often people when we're the way we're violated as kids how we tend to find ourselves in situations where the same kind of thing happens. Mm. It's 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 so disturbing. But in a lot of ways, that's how trauma plays itself out. It has to it recreates the same kind of scenarios until there's an escape, until there's healing, until there's a a repair happening. And so it's so important that we are mindful and we, you know, we give ourselves time between, between dates and we process this stuff with, with healthy people. So we can really start to make sense of what is actually happening rather than what we just grew up with. That might necessarily always be healthy for us. Uh, So real, so real. Yeah. And, And I think it's so interesting because it's almost like if we didn't learn how to have like this internal sense of limits, you know what I mean by that? Like it, yes. if, if we didn't know what was right and what was inappropriate, right? Um, we didn't, if, if no one modeled that for us and our parents themselves were violating these boundaries, it's like, obviously when we're growing up into teenagehood and then into adulthood, it's like, we don't have that cultivated sense of inner limits of like, actually, this is a boundary for me, right? Like this isn't okay. So it makes total sense that where the areas where we were violated in childhood becomes where we struggle the most to have boundaries as adults. You said it perfectly. I mean, how could we, right? Yeah, if we, exactly. We, we don't how have the experience. <laughs> yeah. how, how could we know? We, we learn from what, we act from what we know. And unless we add more skills and you know, a different perspective, it's so challenging to start to unweave ourselves. But it's, it's just so, and so essential and so important. And that's why you know, working with a coach or a therapist or a healer, somebody that has done this kind of work themselves that is really differentiated and knows... Um, um, knows how to reflect back to you um, your actual experience and help you make sense of it is so necessary if you do keep attracting partners that 
you know, you feel really, you may feel really drawn to, really attracted to, but in the end, it always ends up being, they were really not um, healthy for you and not honoring of your boundaries and not Mm -hmm. uh, giving you the kind of emotional availability that you really need. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming too, and you can tell me if I, if I feel on par with this, Um, but I'm, I'm thinking like the more we can honor our boundaries and I'll let you explain the spiritual one because I'm actually super interested Mm -hmm. in that. Um, But it feels like the more we're able to own our boundaries, like you were saying, the better we're probably able to attach and like relate to a healthy partner and be a healthy partner, right? Like it all plays hand in hand. Absolutely. And when we, when we're, when we're holding a boundary about something and if our partner is not trying to understand what that is or try to work with us, it can be very, again, very disorienting. You know, one of the things I used to do early on in my own relationship with my partner, I used to make a lot of assumptions in my early, in my earlier days when I was very unskillful, which still happens. (laughs) I used to, you know, make assumptions about his experience. You know, I used to like this happened and then this happened and he, you know, after a while, he's like, I feel really disoriented when you do that, you know, and this is a boundary for me. I don't like this. And I was like, whoa, he's so right. I totally do that. But because I was willing to see it, even though I felt like shit, let's be honest, I felt so much shame and it's like, I can't believe, you know, I'm doing this. And because I was able to reflect on it and I knew how important it was for him to feel um, validated and that his reality to be to be acknowledged. Mm-hmm. I had to really work on not doing that, but also, of course, I still did it on accident and, but acknowledging it right away. Oh my God, I totally realized I did that thing. I'm so sorry. Um, I totally see why that would be upsetting for you. And, you know, we really worked on clarifying that boundary. And had I not, you know, had I just been like, you know what, you're just, you know, not making this, you're making a big deal out of nothing. That's when we re-traumatize people. Yeah. You know, like my, my boundaries, like I need to feel like my emotions are validated because that was, you know, that's been something in my earlier relationships that wasn't present, Mm -hmm. especially my first relationship growing up. It was so traumatic. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, if I feel like my emotions are not being validated, I, I I stand up for myself now. I didn't do that before because I didn't even know what was happening. I was used to like not being tended to emotionally. Now I'm like, you know, I totally get your perspective, but I just want you to know that it's really important that my feelings are validated here. I, you know, it's, it's really important that you, you understand what that means to me and holding firm to that, but in a loving way, in a respectful way, but in a self-honoring way. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I could pick your brain forever, I think. Aww. <laughs> um, I, I study this stuff. For, I swallow this stuff for dinner. It's like my yeah, life. <laughs> yeah, no, like there's probably like not a more interesting topic for me than this, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get to know where we can find you on the internet and what you're all about and what kind of courses that you have that if people love you, which I'm sure they will, they might want to look into. Um, can you just tell us a bit about the spiritual boundary? Because I think that's maybe... Absolutely. I feel like maybe that's the one that's the hardest to relate to or to comprehend. Yes. And I'm so glad we we circled back to this because it's really important. We live in a time where there's a lot of coaches. There's a lot of people, you know, impersonating gurus and, Mm -hmm. you know, 
spiritual authorities and experts. And what happens in a lot of these uh, environments that can be very cult-like and, you know, even in a lot of religious organizations, um, if there's too much of that group thinking mentality and not enough allowance for individual growth and autonomy, our spiritual boundaries become violated. So as kids, you know, we can happen when our our parents use God to scare us. You know, if you don't do this, God is going to, uh, God is going to do something bad or, you know, just instilling fear for kids makes them not only feel shame, but also terrorized. So as, as adults, a lot of times people will be afraid to uh, pursue their religion or to really go deeper in that because it's been instilled in a way that has not always been, um, healthy. Um, Another way spiritual boundaries can be violated is if our parents tend to be very unhuman. And what I mean by that is they don't really show their vulnerability. They don't show their um, emotions. They're more, they kind of feel very, um, like they're so above that, like they feel unattainable, unreachable, un, unrelatable. And so that creates like this, again, it's not, they're not, they're not really comforting us or maybe they give us a, you know, a spiritual affirmation where they say, they say something instead of giving us the actual comfort that we need as kids. Mm. Um, And so it it leaves kids just to feel like they, they don't want to uh, pursue a spiritual life. They don't want, and again, some people don't want it just for their own, for their own reasons. And that's completely okay as well. I want, I don't want to, you know, make people feel like they have to be spiritual this is not about that but this is about where that making of the choice comes from and if it's coming from a place of acceptance and guidance in a loving way versus a uh, very pressured or um intense and not very sensitive way and you know as adults if you're working with a with a coach or you know in a in a type of group environment that's not good with honoring your boundaries. This is a big red flag. If somebody is saying, you know, you need to bypass this feeling for being enlightened or your ego is trying to get you to see something that's not present, da, 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 da. anything that's trying to justify or take you away from actually being where you are, huge red flag, huge Ugh. spiritual violation. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Does that make sense, Emily? Oh, yeah, that makes total sense. And actually, I think um, um, my mom was super new agey, so I'll share this example, and you can tell me if this is this is right for this kind of boundary violation. Um, it, my mom, oftentimes, when I had big feelings, like when I was upset with her because she would do something that hurt me, or I was upset with the divorce situation that her and my dad were going through, a lot of the times, instead, this is because she, of, of course, like I understand where why she wasn't capable of giving me the proper attunement, logically speaking. But as a child, it's like I really needed comfort and I really needed um, attunement and um, presence to what the need was in that moment probably, right? Um, But oftentimes my mom would say to me, like, forgive yourself for choosing us as parents (laughs) or like forgive. And I laugh still because there's still a bit of anger there for me of like, you know, that was very – that, that was so confusing for me as a child because when I had these big feelings, I was very hurt and she would often, um, because she wasn't able to be there because she wasn't able to share her vulnerability with me for whatever reason, um, it would create almost like we couldn't relate and she would kind of spiritually bypass my feelings and say that um, this was 
like oftentimes she would be like, forgive yourself for choosing me as a mother instead of being like, sweetie, I'm so sorry that I'm hurting you, <laughs> right? Absolutely. So would this be considered um, a spiritual boundary violation, we would say? It's like a bypassing of sorts. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, it's, it's, it's when our parents, like, whether, again, they don't have the skills yeah. or they, they didn't learn it or that's how their parents are doing it. Yeah. As kids, what we need is like what you said. Yeah. Hey, mom, I'm having a hard time. Your feelings are okay. What can I do to comfort you? Mommy, sorry. Mm -hmm. Your feelings are valid. Mm -hmm. That's the core of what is missing is that your feelings are not being validated in that experience. We can't go to yeah. a spiritual place. We're humans. And that's, again, that's why we have to be careful. If we are a spiritual person, it's beautiful. Allow yourself to go deep in that work, but make sure you're not bypassing the human mm. side of you, the parts of us that we all make mistakes and learning to own them so that we can be better partners. And, you know, that's not always, it's yes. not easy in the beginning stages of the journey to start recognizing the parts of ourselves that, are not so great, you know? <laughs> yeah, and that's really interesting because you're bringing up that whole idea of groupthink. And I think I, just because my mom was so new agey and I, I felt so much pain out of her spirituality, like I just felt like that's the reason me and my mom can't connect, right? Mm. Um, I, I just was very resistant to having my own spiritual practice. So it took me a long time to feel like I could even like relate to the idea of what God means to me because I felt like this whole groupthink that, for example, like we're all one and, you know, it doesn't, there was a lot of different um, thoughts and beliefs that I was really introduced to in, in circles of, um, and some of them like were beneficial in some ways, but I feel like I was very much repelled mm -hmm. by spirituality and religion, um, probably because my spiritual boundaries were being violated and I had no idea. <laughs> I didn't know what those were. You know, in the, in the book, Roquel Lerner says spiritual, the spiritual boundary is the spiritual or spirituality is the last thing to come. I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally, what is the word? Um, uh, God damn it. What is it? Paraphrasing. Paraphrasing. No, no, no. The, oh. where I'm, I'm butchering it. I'm totally oh, butchering, butchering it. Yeah. <laughs> so she's, she says spirituality is the first thing to go and the last to return. Mm. Whoa. Yeah. That makes sense yeah. to me. I relate to that. Yeah. So you, Emily, really need somebody that can really tune into your emotions and really meet you at that grounded level. Like oh, really 100%. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm with you. I'm right there with you. Like, it's so important oh, to me to have. Thank you. My feelings matter. Yeah. yeah. Solidarity. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, okay. Amazing. So this is that this has been amazing. Is there anything that you feel like you wanted to share that you haven't gotten to share yet? I think we've, we've crammed enough information for people. I think they're good. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. So uh, where do we find you, Sylvie? Um, we talked about your amazing Instagram platform already. So how about we give people the handles? Um, and then where can we find your course on boundaries? And where can we connect with you if either people are interested in working with you or just getting more so of the educational osmosis that you just naturally ooze, it seems like? <laughs> So much, Emily. Well, if you're interested in one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions, you can find me. You can find me on my website. It's sylviekukasian.com. And then also I have a boundaries program where I talk about all this kind of stuff and also offer um, 
lots of practical language for how to have boundaries with your partner and how to language them and how to have consequences in a way that, you know, if somebody's not honoring your boundary, what you can do about it to actually get them to hear you more deeply or to see that this is just not a good fit and they're not going to ever meet my boundaries. Um, mm -hmm. I could, I could tag the link for that for you. On this. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We'll put all of the links to that on the episode show notes. And um, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us and giving us some of this wisdom. I know that it's going to be um, life changing if if you've never heard of this stuff before for those listening. Um, but also it feels like it went in depth and cleared up some things, even if you do have some education around it already. And uh, you put it in really practical um ways that feel super tangible. So thank you again, Sylvie, so much for joining us. Yay, you're so welcome. <laughs> I love being practical, so I'm, I'm glad to get that feedback. That's Good. awesome. Awesome. So <laughs> if you listen to the show and you liked it, don't forget to leave a review, rate the podcast. It is growing and it's because of you. And if you like this episode, feel free to reach out to me and tell me why. And I will talk to you next week. Thank you.